0: Hi, Nick Petrella here. This episode is sponsored by Volkwine's Music, a full-service shop that's been meeting the musical needs of musicians for over 135 years. They offer a huge selection of instruments, accessories, music, and more. They also have an unmatched instrument repair department with some of the most experienced technicians in the business. For years, they've serviced my personal and school instruments, and their attention to detail is why I and professional musicians from around the globe trust Volkwine's to service their gear. Head over to Volkwinesmusic.com to see what they can do for you. That's V O L K W E I N S music.com, helping people discover music since 1888.
1: Welcome to the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast, making art work. We highlight how entrepreneurs align their artistry, passion, and vision to create and pursue opportunities to capture value in the arts. The views expressed by guests on the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the podcast or its hosts. The appearance of a guest on the podcast, the venture they represent, or reference to any product or service does not imply an endorsement or recommendation by the podcast or its hosts. The content provided is for entertainment and informational purposes only and does not constitute business advice. Here are your hosts, Andy Heiss and Nick Petrella.
2: Welcome podcast listeners. My name is Andy Heiss. And I'm Nick Petrella. Today on the podcast, we have Nathan Daughtry, who's the president of Seattle and Publications. He gave a great interview and uh, I really liked how he emphasized the importance
0: of diversifying your skill set. And he really did live that way. I mean, he took the time to learn about composition and enhance his knowledge base. And I think that's important from someone who came from, say, a percussion performance background.
2: Yeah, especially since, uh, as I said, he's the owner of Seattle Publications, uh, that that sort of skill set, that mindset, really lends itself well to knowing all of the business operations required to, to, to take over an existing business, to buy an existing business from someone and continue to run it not just as it was, but also to think about the future of that business as well. And I think it's also important to keep in mind for the listeners that
0: it's, he's not doing anything that they can't do. Right, yeah. So here's
2: part two of our interview with Nathan.
0: So self-publishing started to take off about 10 to 15 years ago. How has that affected the industry as a whole and C. Allen specifically?
3: Well, um, you know, it's it's a challenge – uh, you know, one of the big things that I am trying to focus on is building relationships with our composers. Um, you know, I, I, right after I took over, I, I sent a, I created a brochure and sent that out to all of our existing composers, but it's something that goes to new composers as they come into the fold and it's a welcome to the family brochure. And it just kind of, it outlines the mission and the vision of the company, um gives my kind of direct line saying I'm available to to talk and uh I just really wanted to outline how important the composers are to us as the company and that I do want it to feel like a family or at least a really good friendship um so you know when someone Uh, For lack of a better term, jump ship, (laughs) you know, and and starts publishing on their their own. It is, uh, you know, it's a little bit sad. Um, But at the same time, as a composer, I understand Mm -hmm. it. I understand wanting to make more money off of your sheet music. Um, At the same time, uh, you know, what you're inviting is a lot more work. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, working for yourself uh, to get the music out there. Um, so, you know, I don't think it has, I don't think it's affected us in a way that you would be able to tell looking at the bottom line. Uh, I think it's more, Our it, it makes our uh, composite voice as a publisher shift over time because we've lost That person. We still have the pieces that we contracted. uh, For the most part, Um, we still have those in the catalog, so we still have that. But we don't have new things as that person develops. Um, So that's one of the things that I really focus on uh, when I'm talking to our current composers or talking to composers as they come into the fold. Is you are your voice. You that is the reason that we brought you on board. We believe in your voice, and it uh it makes our voice even better and more unique uh, this you know this is why uh, you see this in concert band publishing a lot where there's a composer who pretty much all they write is concert band music and maybe they've written 12 pieces in a given year. Well a single publisher isn't going to put out 12 pieces by one composer mm-hmm. so they spread that across self, You know, several publishers, and what I I think the effect that has is that it dilutes the voices of those publishers. Mm. You know, if you think about in the percussion industry, you think about Roloff and C. Allen Publications and Tap Space, we all have kind of our individual voices right and that's because of the composers that we have on board and i think that's an awesome thing and as soon as you know people start spreading their things across it uh you know i I think that like i said dilutes things that got a little bit off topic i think that's good we're talking about self-publication right Um, but i don't think it really had a huge effect on us uh financially it's just finding ways to adapt and still bring other people in
2: and just to kind of summarize that you said the so the if we think about maybe the impact self-publishing has had on publishing companies uh it it requires you to focus more on the relationship side necessarily than the uh you know the services you provide to the composer.
3: Yes, um you know one one thing I'm trying to do a better job of is to be more transparent. Um about what it is we do on behalf of the composers, to our composers, um, it, you know it's so easy to just kind of <laughs> you know see see the percentage that you're making off of each sale and be like, "Oh, I could make so much more doing this on my own." but if you then see all the things that we're doing for each piece in the catalog, you know we're we're in contact with directors all the time directly um to get pieces performed at uh, national and international conferences uh we are exhibiting at these conferences which is an expensive thing um and bringing our music their their music so it's getting into people's hands and, and ears um and we're also encouraging um performances to happen just in you know kind of day-to-day uh places and and we're encouraging uh like video performances to happen. So I think, uh, you know, just trying to be more proactive, um, both in being transparent, but also proactive about generating more performances and, uh, you know, professional quality videos of pieces in the catalog, I think uh, makes it pretty attractive, coupled with the hopefully the personal relationship that we're building in the process.
0: So switching gears, can you tell us what ways C. Allen mitigates piracy?
3: Yeah, well, piracy has always been an issue, right? In in every area of the arts. Um so and and it shifted over time, right? It's become even more challenging um as things become available as uh digital versions, right? You know, it used to be that we had to photocopy something to <laughs> to pirate she music. Um so it's become a bit easier. Uh you know, at at the very simplest, we have printed warnings on the music, it, you know, that I, I think probably only uh, affects somebody's conscience uh, in a very small percentage, um, but w- one of the things that we're doing um, currently is completely redesigning our website uh, from the ground up um, for a, a lot of different reasons, um, but this is one area that we're going to improve things is on the uh, security side of things, as uh, as we get more heavily into, um, digital products. Um, you know, but we do the things we regularly search, you know, all the various sites where pirated music is, uh, found. And, uh, you know, we, we gently yet forcefully go after people, um, <laughs> and you know things get taken down but uh, at the same time if if someone hasn't uh labeled something with the composer's name or the the name of the piece then you you kind of throw your hands up right uh you know one one other area this i guess could fall under this uh is when people uh arrange something without getting permission uh and you know we'll see that uh in in marching band um quite a bit right so we've had to go after a a few ensembles over the years uh, uh, bring our lawyer into the mix Um, you know so just yeah (laughs) those are the ways I mean it's it's just uh, doing everything that we can but also understanding that there's only so much that we can do yeah
2: I met a person whose company um, held the rights to, you know, a, a really popular font and, uh, you know, they actively were pursuing mm. copycat um, font creators and people using it without permission. Um, you know, so to it, what degree, you know, do, do you actively pursue people that are in violation of, of intellectual property law?
3: Ah. It- I I yeah I was kind of answering the question uh on a different level wasn't I I was I was talk I was kind of thinking about it in terms of like piracy of you know like when when people um take a video and you know copy it and sell it or even just use it for their personal use but uh yeah from a like plagiarism point of view uh yes and we take it very seriously we have a um you know, we have a copyright lawyer on Retainer who's fantastic. Um, and yeah, we've had to use him several times. We've also been on the other side of it, too, where uh, one of our composers, unknowingly to us, lifted something from another piece that was maybe 20 years old. Um, and, you know, they they claimed to have done it by accident, but it was, you know, same key, same accompaniment figure you know same note same rhythm so uh you know that we handled that very swiftly and and uh yeah so you know you're sometimes caught on both sides of it not by any fault of your own but uh you know it's tough to know every uh every piece that's out there right um but uh it's important to handle it swiftly when when it does happen regardless of what side you're on sure So how do you balance your
2: time between composing, teaching, performing, running CL and publications uh, in in your personal life?
3: Well, uh, I, gosh, you know, the past year is different than hopefully it will be in coming years. Um, That being said, uh, I I have a five-year-old daughter or she'll be five in one month and, uh, uh, you know, we really prioritize uh, family time in the house. So w- when we're all in the house together, we have, and it's during a meal, we have that meal together. You know, breakfast is everybody. Dinner is everybody at the table. Uh, so we really do prioritize that. My work day uh, with the publishing company is from about 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. I, I turn things off at 4 p.m. You know, I still have all my email accounts on my phone. So if something needs to be attended to, then I take care of that. But uh, those from four o'clock on is, is family time. The uh, you know, to, to keep um, keep in shape and, and such uh, I do get up on mornings that I'm working out. I get up at 5. AM and go out for a run is my, my preference. And uh, that's all to get it done before, Penelope wakes up. And so <laughs> the day starts, uh, w- with her waking up around between six and six thirty. So, yeah. And, you know, I haven't even mentioned the, the composing and the performing side of things. Um, those are much more project based. Uh, so i at this stage in my life, I'm not practicing every single day. Uh, I'm fortunate working from home that I do have, uh, you know, a marimba and a vibraphone um, here in my office. Uh, So that's great. And so I can pop over and play a few notes uh, when I want to. Um, But yeah, I just have to make time. And uh, right now, it's making time during my business day <laughs> uh, because I can just walk over here and I can practice for 30 minutes if I need to. Um, but like I said, it's project-based. It's kind of, I, I I like to say that it's emergency-based, you know, whatever's coming up soon, you make time for it. And, you know, that'll uh, make its way into the weekend. I have, gosh, starting, I have a commission that's due in May and then I have, Got about four more pieces that are due in the months wow. following that. Um, I've not done hardly any composing over the past year. Uh, I've done a lot. I've done some arranging of things for the company. Um, but my mode of operation with composing is to get out of the house and go to like a coffee shop. And I've not had that option. And so getting in the right mindset here where there are so many things you know, tugging at me uh, has been a real challenge. So it's kind of, I've put that aside and know that, you know, I'm, I will be uh, uh, 100% uh, vaccinated here in, in a week and a half. So hoping to get back into something approximating normal. Sure. Yeah. That sounds like you have a great work-life balance. I hope so. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> it's the, it's what we yes. aim for.
2: It's all, and it's all about the change again. Right. I mean, with the, as we all, as, as the world returns to whatever the new normal is. Absolutely. So what were some of the challenges you encountered, um, in the transition of ownership of the business? So when, when you bought the business from the previous owner?
3: Well, um, you know, one of the really nice things without going into a lot of specifics, uh, for for (laughs) legal reasons, um, (laughs) One of the really nice things about the transition is the way that we set it up, uh, there was not a lot of personal risk for me. Mm. Um, that certainly helped with the decision. Uh, that made it a lot easier. Um, but also, you know i have I have over a hundred publications uh, with the company. Um, this has been my publishing home for, uh, uh, about 20 years. And, Mm -hmm. um, I believe in the mission of the company, I believe in what we're doing. And I, I could see that there were, there was still room for growth and room to do some more awesome things, uh, moving forward. So, yeah, um, the, but the challenges right out of the gate were things that were just they're pretty mundane things, but they were also very unexpected, just things that we didn't take care of, uh, as well as we could have in the transition. And we're just talking about like insurance type things, you know, (laughs) it's not interesting at all, but they were, uh, things that I had to deal with the first three months of, uh, of owning the company. It was, uh, just putting out fires left and right. But I'm, I think, on the other side of, of all of those fires, and I'll get to create some of my own. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> so we have three questions
0: we ask all the interviewees. And uh, the first one is what advice would you give others wanting to become an arts entrepreneur in your art form?
3: Well, I think diversifying uh, your, your skill set. Um, learning as many things as you can, especially while you're uh, in an educational situation, you know, you have access to to things that you might not have access to when you get out. Um, I, I, I was watching a, a late night TV show um, interview with uh, Ethan Hawke, actor Ethan Hawke. And uh, he said something, I, he shared a... Uh, a phrase I think he said it was maybe a shaker uh quote or saying, and it was something to the effect of to master a craft you have to apprentice in three something to that effect and so hmm. the reason he was talking about that is that he was being asked about uh you know he's an actor he is a director he's a writer you know all all these things, and so he, he was coming at it from this aspect of all of these things that I do. He's like acting has always been my passion, right? But all these other things—the writing, the, the directing—they inform the acting craft, and I think that is true for—I I mean, for for any of us, you know, whatever we consider ourselves as our career and our passion the other things that we're doing outside of that are improving uh, and and are ancillary to, uh, to our primary craft. So, you know, for me, my primary craft, I, I always thought of it as being performing. It has kind of transitioned into more composing. Now, being a business owner that's taken up the majority of my time outside of my family time. So those things that I did, all the hours that I spent practicing and performing all the hours I spent composing um, those are serving me really well as the owner of a, a publishing company. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you just confirmed
0: what all artists know. They're not one dimension. Yeah. And to really know something, you have to investigate every aspect yeah. of your art. Absolutely.
2: What can we do to ensure that the arts are more accessible and reaching the
3: widest possible audience? Well, uh, you know, I alluded to this earlier uh, when we were, when I, I, I used uh, Punch Brothers as as an example. Uh, and it's paying attention to your audience. And I don't think, I think we can do that without... Necessarily pandering to the audience. And, uh, you know, I think you look, you know, look at uh, orchestra concerts uh, and how the programming goes with those concerts. And, you know, we know that there are more and more of those uh, movie soundtrack concerts that are happening. Um, and, you know, wh- whatever side of the fence you fall on with uh, whether that's a good or a bad thing, it does attract more listeners. And more uh, people to, to attend concerts, right? Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's knowing your audience uh, and and listening to them, while also staying true to your you know artistic desires. Yeah. What's
0: the best artistic or entrepreneurial advice anyone's ever given you?
3: I think it's just to never stop learning. Uh, you know, as, as soon as you think you know everything, uh, I think you're in trouble, uh, and and it's maybe time to <laughs> to stop doing uh, that thing. Um, you know, one thing that I, since my daughter was born, um, and you know, we read to her every night before she goes to sleep, and uh, so we've gotten to know like the Curious George books really, really well. Uh, but you know, it got me thinking. Um, pretty criti- critically about curiosity, and uh, you know the way that it's framed in those books is kind of a bad thing, right? Uh, this is George. He was a, a good little monkey, but he was always curious, or he was too curious. Like that's a problem. Yeah, it got him into trouble. You know, uh, you know, he swallowed a puzzle piece. Had to go to the hospital and get it taken out. Whatever. <laughs> but uh, I don't. I, I guess I like to follow the things that uh, that make me curious and follow them through. You know, I do this in, in composing. I like to find a concept, um, you know, whether it's finding inspiration from a poem or a book or a a painting or something, or just having a, a title that I like. Uh, And then learning as much as I can about whatever that thing is and going down the rabbit hole and, you know, uh, and and just following my curiosity and i think it helps inform my process inform the the composition and what what that becomes so yeah i think just being curious and following that curiosity is as far as you can yeah
2: nathan thank you so much for your time today
3: oh it's my pleasure thank you
1: thanks for listening if you like this podcast please subscribe Visit artsentrepreneurshippodcast.com to learn more about our guest and how you can help support artists, the arts, and this podcast.